Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed wherever you live with the Newcastle Libraries app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we live, the Awabakal and Waramai people, who were the first storytellers of this nation and are the proud survivors of more than 200 years of continuing dispossession. This is the Broken Chain series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real and local artist Damien Lenane. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed throughout the series are solely attributed to the host and guests of the program and do not reflect the official policy or position of the City of Newcastle. Welcome back to another episode of Broken Chains, a podcast on the prison system. I'm Damien Lenane, an artist, author, your host, and of course, a former prisoner. Broken Chains is recorded on the traditional land of the Awabakal people, and I'd like to pay my respect to elders. Sovereignty was never ceded. On today's episode, we're talking to Brett Collins, who runs the prison activist group, Justice Action. Yes, it was broken. Thanks for being on uh, Broken Chains today, Brett. Why don't we start by just introducing yourself, telling us a bit about your story and uh, how you got involved with what you're doing now. Ah, gee, that's a big one. Yeah, (laughs) maybe just your story to start with, yeah. You know, first of all, I'm an ex-prisoner, you know, did did, um, 10 years out of a 17-year sentence. So we did it for for bank robbery back there in the, it was, gee, 70... 71, 71 it was, and um, I got a 17-year sentence, and and um, and I got verbals. Uh, they verbaled me for it. The cops um, said I admitted to uh, robbing a bank, and, uh, and they did some. It was at the time I was outraged by it. I had a good barrister, and the barrister went, "Oh, oh they can't get away with this." He was a, a top man, and he couldn't believe it that they, that they managed to pin me um, on the on the bank robbing, and I ended up with a 17-year sentence. They they charged me some other stuff as well against um, police. But they were. I was acquitted of all that, um, all those charges, and um, so I ended up um, sitting in in um, in the pokey for ten years. Before I was in there, look, I must admit I was always a, all you a naughty boy. I'd been um, I'd been in Borstal in New Zealand. I'd been there. I was given what they call a naught to two indeterminate sentence. I spent nine months. In, in the boys' home with all the naughty boys. And so I learned some nice new habits there <laughs> <laughs> with all the Maori boys. And, um, mm. and uh, so, you know, I already had a bit of a smell of uh, what it was like to be in an institution. Right. No, fair enough. I can't, I can't even begin to imagine what prison was like in the 70s compared to today. Um, yeah, do you, do you think there's been a lot of change in the system since then? Oh, well, yeah, look, enormous. In some ways, yes, enormous. I think it's a lot worse, actually. I think right. when I, yeah, I think so. Uh, look, I think when I went to jail, uh, first of all, there was a, a camaraderie. Um, there was a real sense of people working together. I mean, they had divisions too, and you know, heaps of um, and nasty stuff. But at the same time, uh, look, I was amongst all the naughty boys. I was um, from the very beginning. I was charged with capital offences, actually, so against police. And so, so I was put into into the high security units in in Long Bay. Um, and so, and then from there, I was immediately with all the, all the naughty boys and. 
um, so there was a, an escape as well, an attempted escape and all that sort of stuff. And I was in the, um, kept in the front yards and the cages, segregation, uh, black cells. You know, at the first um, 10 days in a black cell within a few, uh, few months of um, being arrested. I would look, I was, <laughs> I, I didn't have really, to be honest, um, a, a great deal of excuse for, uh, for all my problems. I mean, a lot of uh, other people coming from a different, um, different basis in their life. And I came in as a, as a privileged um, young uh, university student. I was, I was actually an engineering student. Had me, had been a, a medical student. Father was a doctor, a gynecologist. And I thought, oh, what? And so, so, you know, it's ridiculous that I ended up in jail in the way I did. And so all the other members of the family were going, What's it? What's what's Brett doing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the black sheep yeah. of the family, then I guess. So. Oh, very much so. You know, look, yeah. I think I think probably everybody else was uh, be performing so well that I felt I had to bring a bit of balance into the band. You mentioned a uh, black cell before. Um, is that like a cell without light, or like, I haven't heard that term before? Oh, absolutely. Well, no, they what they used to do was um, put you into the the digger they used to cause in the in the black cell. So uh, I I ended up um, my first term in the black cell was for um for ten days. You all they do was leave you in the in the cell there, lock, open up the door, take out all your bedding, everything else, and um and leave you there. And I and they had a series of cells there in Long Bay, actually at the in the old CIP. I think they called area. Sure, what they call area four, maybe. Um, down the bottom, and so um, and they had so they sealed had had welded up the um the flanges over the bars and they had them all sealed and they had also a flange inside the inside the door itself so it meant that when they closed the door it was totally dark totally black totally right black. wow yeah. um do you know yeah. if they do they still have that i i can't imagine uh, no i didn't think i think they stopped that after a while but um, yeah but, but you know i had i had uh, that first 10 days and then they gave me 28 days um uh, later um uh, uh, because i'd uh, written a, a letter to the law society asking for some some support and in in maitland i um i'd uh, asked that uh, that they assisted me with an, an appeal and the governor um, of the jail, uh, he actually said, um, uh, "Hey, you, you, you're accusing me of doing things that I, I didn't do. You're telling lies about me uh, in complaining about what I'm doing, um, uh, making false statements. That's worth 28 days." And he summarily um, established that I was entitled to be, I had to be in a in a black cell for 28 days. And whoa, that mm. was uh, you need to pace yourself carefully on that one. Well. Yeah. yeah, and then when I went to Grafton, they um they then um, decided to give me another twenty eight days up at Grafton, so I was left in the, as an intractable and the <laughs> <laughs> up there for twenty eight days too. So uh, you know, I had to I had to learn a bit of uh, self control, you might say, to learn that you don't need anything really when <laughs> when the chips are down. Fair, fair enough. I, probably just uh, one thing I wanted to talk about at your personal story was, uh, yeah, um, so as you've told me before, you've still got the record, I believe, for the longest time spent protesting on the roof. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Do, you, do you want to tell us about that briefly? <laughs> Oh, well, okay. Yeah, sure. Look, you know, this, I mean, you know, for, you know, for, for the crims, you know, it's actually a special one. I, in fact, I'm very proud about it. I don't hide it. It's what a privilege, you know, it's unchallenged. So, it's, so I was on the, up on the, up on the roof of the, of the Long Bay up there and, and, and so remained up there for three days. I was, I was told to me that I was um, going down to, um, down to Katingle, which was the high security unit. So I'd just come out of um, another high security unit and in, um, in, I'm not sure whether that stage might have been 
Parramatta. And so I was then told that the, the Bother Boys, the called them the Special Operations Division SWAT, was waiting to pick me up and um, and were going to take me to Katingle. And I thought, nah, you know, they won't be sitting inside one of those uh, locked cells in the unit. So I thought, nah, let's go for the roof. So up I went, boop, 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 up on top of the roof, the highest roof, and sat up there. And then I, I got myself a nice big bar and ripped it off the roof and said, okay, come and get me, come and get me. And they went, yeah. Well, Collins is not going to stay out there very long. It won't be a problem, they thought. They didn't understand that um, I had a lot of support in the jail. So people were um, giving me all their food. I was able to lean over the side of the roof and pick up food from all the from all my mates. And uh, so I, I, I was the king right on the roof. And they, they suddenly realised I was going to be there uh, as far as I was concerned the rest of my 17 years. <laughs> well, I, I didn't actually know that part. I was wondering, I thought you must have been very hungry but there you go they were th- you're throwing things to you and stuff yeah <laughs> yeah that's a good look there's actually a, a, a um, photo of me up on the roof there and in the center of a, a book a book um, called the um it's uh, I've got the name of it. I'm not a library here, but uh, the uh, I had such great support from outside, and so they had the television camera actually out there. And Channel Seven had me f- focused, and the lens was made, I made news. So we had a lot of um, good people outside the prison who gave me great support during my sentence. So it's one of the reasons, actually, quite honestly, that I'm I'm still working in the prison movement was that there were so many people who were prepared to support me while I was in jail, and I felt that I had to give back. It wasn't just the prisons themselves around me, but it was also you know the prisoner movement outside it just made a big difference to me and so i just felt that how, how could i accept so much support from people outside and not not feedback so i'm still here you know it's, it's it's my community is this i suppose that has a lot to do with why you started justice action then yeah, I, look, I, I can't say that I started Justice Action. That's not really where it is. So uh, when I went to prison, first of all, there was a very feisty group outside called the Prisoners Action Group, and they were yeah. just really such a strong, strong group. And and they formed the basis really of the of the Royal Commission, the Nagar Royal Commission, back in '76. So after the batterings um, in 75, 74, 75, um, the Bathurst batterings, the whole jail was uh, burnt down and, um, and there was a massive political battle uh, around, uh, around what had occurred there. And uh, we had some really strong people outside, a, a very good um, a member of parliament, George Peterson was there and a whole lot of people were talking about, you know, how things should change in the prison system. And I was up at the Maitland at the time and see, we burnt down the whole section of Maitland. We had our Maitland riot as well. <laughs> So um, and that caused a few roar. And so there was a, a Royal Commission that followed from that. It was a really interesting situation. And, and a lot of people came together and the Prisoners Action Group was outside. And it actually worked with a whole lot of people who stood around. Um, we stood around and the lawyers and engaged, a whole lot of political people were engaged as well. People like, you know, um, a, a guy called Tony Green, and people like Tony, um, a whole lot of stuff. Um, uh, Tom Kelly, a um, big team who were still out. And so, and they gave support then to uh, the Royal Commission, the Nagar Royal Commission, which then brought in changes, major changes at that stage into the prison system. And so I was able to ride on the back of all that support outside and then working inside, um, I was able to then cobble together uh, the prison's legal cooperative and work with the prison's action group. And then, and then when I got out, um, I had a halfway house to go to, and then I became a manager of Glebe House. 
and so and we continued on to um to do major campaigns through there changing as we went changing the names of the organizations that we went so prisons action group still continued and then we then formed a, the two anderson campaign and behind the three margies and Nandamaga um three enormous um, campaign there which was successful to Anderson and Ross Dunn and Paul Allison were part of that. That was a very big campaign, which we won. It was around the Hilton Hotel bombing, um, where we actually worked with uh, those three ex-prisoners and got them out and then had a major, uh, a series of major campaigns, bringing hundreds of people together. And then um, I kept bringing it under a new banner called the called KEFTA, um, a campaign exposing the frame-up of Tim Anderson was the way it finally ended up being successful, major success, major public success in front of in front of the um, uh, Court of Criminal Appeal. And then, uh, then after we won that, we said, well, what's next? What's next? And people said, well, we have to continue to work. We said, of course we have to. So we had like hundreds of people working with us in that campaign. And they said, let's work out a, a new organization rising out of that. And then after a lot of discussion, debates and things like that, we said, well, let's call it Justice Action. And so that's Justice Action. So I definitely wasn't the creator of Justice Action. I was just very much um, you know, an activist engaged and with all these other people as well. So you know, they, my role is still the same. I have all these other people out there who still have ownership of the organization, who contribute and benefit, and so I'm just part of the action. Yes, it was broken. When did that banner change happen? Like, when would you say justice action uh, was formed? Well, it's, it's so well documented. I mean, we have we have even all the documents of the discussions and, and even the logos and things like you wouldn't believe how much documentation we have. But I, I reckon that would have been uh, 89 would have been when Tim Anderson was arrested the second time. I think we're talking about probably 91, I'd say. 91, 92, I'd say that's that's when justice action, um, its name started to, it was accepted. We no longer then started to talk as as the prisons action group. We were talking as justice action. And then we had a whole lot of people who, who didn't see themselves just as ex-prisoners who are actually engaged in the operation. So these days we have uh, we have you know hundreds of people who are who are, have never been to jail uh, who very much feel as though justice action is its vehicle. Um, but the, underneath it all uh, is the uh, are the um, prisoners themselves who give direction to what we're doing and ex-prisoners, people like you and I who actually who who are part of the culture of, of the prisoner movement and who give a direction so we as you know you're one of our consultative group you know you very much listen to to what you say and what a whole lot of other people who have had your prison experience have to say yeah no it's it's uh, really good to hear that um there's been people advocating for quite a long time now and yeah i'm wondering uh, like what would you say the major successes you've had in the like campaign for prisoners rights have been over the last well, for a few decades, I guess. If it's eighty-nine. Yeah. yeah. Quite honestly, I would see I would see Justice Action and the Prisoners Action Group as really um, a part of an expression that really began a long time before, heaps and heaps of time before. So we mm -hmm. we deliberately have have um, put up on our on the website, Justice Action website, um, a, like the history of the prisoner movement, which we take right back to the beginning of the penal colony, very deliberately. Because, because there's a history there, the history that began with the convicts coming over from, from well, most importantly from England, and, and the history of the way they responded and dealt with each other. That's a very rich history, so well documented. And I think mm. to not track back to that would be would be just such a mistake because there's so, so many lessons there in, on Norfolk Island 
what happened with those people there in North Oakland, how they how they responded to to being first of all being treated like death, who was a welcome relief from life, you know, in North Oakland. Ah, oh, they would kill each other, um, and just in order that they could relieve themselves of the of their torture of being there. You know, they really you have to read that material um, to to really understand the intensity of it, and it's been so well documented. But to have the richness of that of that of that experience. And then to understand that human beings are still the same. That if you actually treat them so badly, uh, then then uh, <laughs> they come to the stage when they don't care if they live or die. Really, okay. What's the problem? The problem is not for the people who want who don't don't care whether they live or die. The problem is for other people around them. There's the guards. The guards know. Oopsie, we have got a problem here. You can't threaten these people anymore. They they're what's called stones. And that term was actually is um, something that was used back in the beginning of the penal colony. They become a stone, and the stone is like, whoa, that's dangerous. You can't move these people. And so you have some really interesting, well-documented cases of people who who were treated like that, and who became so hardened that they could not be, um, they were inured from pain. The way that then suddenly they could flower as well, which was really exciting. There's a guy called Fred Anderson who he's a, oh, what a classic case. You know, he was he was like a subhuman. They, they chained him onto onto the, the rock in the centre of the harbour there, um, uh, which is uh, under the harbour beach. They chained him there, and he howled and screamed, and they and oh, they treated him abominably, like an animal. And then they took him to Norfolk Island. I think he, he hurt somebody or whatever, and they took him to Norfolk Island. And in Norfolk Island, then then this guy came in. There's a, a new governor came in. His name was Alexander McConaughey. It's the, the same name as um, the ACT prisoners called as called the Alexander McConaughey Centre. Right. Actually, I never thought about that name. There you go. I'll have to look him up later, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, then he, then this guy, a Scottish guy came in and and, um, and so he then took over Norfolk Island. They thought, they thought he'd be a horrible failure, but instead he came in with a whole new idea. And the idea was, well, and that the prisoners should actually be working together as teams, six people working together, looking after each other. And then they could earn their release from Norfolk Island. So you could actually gain marks. So you could actually use like remission by doing certain things, working in the area and whatever, you could actually raise your game and get out. And so, mm. whoa, a whole new incentives. So then behind that, we had a whole lot of things change. And then, and then he actually took under his arm, he took Fred Anderson under his arm and gave him access to, and he, he had to look after the goats. And next moment he's looking, oh, he had responsibility. Next moment, oh, hello. And this guy who was previously like a subhuman became a human being. And oh, look at this. He talks now. He's able to do this. Oh, look at this. And we had a man flower right under his arm. And there he was, fully documented. And so oh. the, the interesting thing was, you know, the principle was a clear one, which has legitimacy now, which is, you know, no matter how degraded people become or are treated, that if you give them an opportunity, give them a chance to a chance to, uh, to find a new way and to and to get support from people around them who, who love them. You've got a team there of six people. Ha! Huh, and next moment you've got a low, a functioning human being. Oh, why? How's that possible? <laughs> and uh, I think that's well a lot has a lot to do with why I got involved in um, campaigning for better rights for prisoners because I yeah something I saw in when I was in there was that, yeah, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for people that they're, they're just kind of marking time. They give them a TV and uh, the people are just uh, that there's nothing really constructive to do when I was there. Like there weren't any educational programs and stuff, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. There's um, uh, you, you, you could have it as an institution where people could really uh, grow a lot more if there were more opportunities in there. And if well, 
Jamie and I, I mean, I think that's probably uh, when you asked initially, well, what did I think was the most important thing we're doing? Uh, look, we've had, we've had this campaign, which is just an executive behind that. That's the campaign to get computers into cells. That is mm. such an important campaign. It's been running now for 20 years, 20 years, and fully documented to to the when it, when we kicked it off, and we actually we actually ended up with all these. We were given all these computers and took them into the prisons into Long Bay, took them up to Queensland. We, we, we were told we had unlimited computers available to us from this organization, which was, um, it was called Tech Assistance to the Disabled. And we worked closely with them. They said, you could have as many computers as you like for the prisoners. And we went, oh, yes, please. So we then distributed them through the through through the prison system and um, and gave them to the education areas, working with the teachers. And it was fascinating. But we actually got hundreds in until then suddenly the governor, and not the governor, the commissioner, Warren Woodham became aware that we were actually getting these computers into the prisons. He went, aha, you can't do this, because he he hated us. The commissioner hated us. And so he then, nah, let's get them all out. And then he, he insisted on the whole lot being picked up and taken and distributed, brought back to us. We went, no, nah, sorry, not happening. You can't bring them back to us. And so then we took them out to the, to the front of Parliament House and sat them right in the in front of the Parliament House. And we said, they're here for the minister to now to take back into the prisons. We have a lovely photograph of, of um, members of Parliament and ourselves, a whole lot of people there, and the computers right up the front of the Parliament House saying, nah, these are computers for prisoners to use. So that, that's a, the earlier history of where we are now, <clears throat> where we're now negotiating for computer tablets, where every prisoner, and there's an agreement now from Corrective Services New South Wales, that every prisoner will have a computer tablet, which is linked to the internet, giving them access to whitelisted websites with access to education. So it means outside services. And instead of inside services, which, which no one trusts, the psychologists and whatever, who have to report to the, the corrective services about your classification, wherever you're going, you have outside services who, who then whom you do trust and like Aboriginal legal services, Aboriginal medical services, all the other services who, who are linked into you culturally, and, and those services then will be accessible through the tablets, which every prisoner will have with a keyboard as well, access to education, access to things in their cells as of right, and access to their families through video conferencing in their cells. Right, very significant stuff. And um, that was a promise that we, that we um, had in 2017. And we locked that down in a meeting with the commissioner and deputy commissioner in December last year. I'm working with John Dowd and Elizabeth Everett. Now that's been publicly talked about and the promises are in place. So we're waiting now, hang on, where are those tablets? And we're kicking as hard as we can to get to that. Yes, it was broken. I've read about how much like uh, good work they do in the ACT with like domestic violence programs and stuff that uh, prisoners were able to study on their tablet. I find it really confusing that we don't have that in New South Wales. And again, that's why part of the reason I couldn't study in um, New South Wales was because uh, the education officer said, um, technically, I can't stop you from enrolling in university, but technically, you also won't be able to complete any of the work that we had a computer room, but we could only get access to it about one hour a week, maybe, which obviously isn't sufficient to study. But I remember I wrote a letter to um, the Minister for Corrections towards the end of my sentence complaining about lack of educational opportunities. And he uh, kind of sent me a perfunctory reply um, saying that, uh, uh, that they were they were implementing a trial and they were looking into it and uh, as I mentioned actually in the last podcast interview I did with uh, Lucas Carey um, I sent an, uh, him another letter uh, like uh, more than a year later 
And I, I got the same reply again. I like, we're still running a trial. So sounds like you're um, a little bit frustrating that it hasn't quite gotten there yet. Like, do, I, do you have, um, how hopeful are you that this is actually going to change anytime soon? Yeah. Oh, look, I have no doubt it will actually, because we've locked down the commissioner and the, and the deputy commissioner into a timetable. They said that we had a whole lot of websites that had already been, were made available. They said that we have, by the middle of this year, so we talked about end of financial year, June 30, they said 15 jails, additional to the existing jails, there were five jails then, they said another 15 jails would have computer tablets for every prisoner in their cells. Now, that's mm -hmm. very significant. And, and they said also that it wasn't just computer tablets. They intended to make sure that there were also computers with keyboards and everything in place as well. Now, we actually saw in the dormitory prisons, which I think are appalling, by the way, but the dormitory prisons, 800 prisoners there, 400 in each of the, both in, in out there at Wellington, and also I think they called Macquarie Correctional Centre and the Hunter Correctional Centre at Cessnock. Both of those have got a console for every prisoner. So you have access to a whole lot of stuff there. And they said that they, what they will do, they will give them keyboards and give them access to those things so people can do education and give rehab services in those um, dormitories. So those things are already in place. And Serco up there in, in the Clarence, um, uh, the, new, the new prison up there. Now, Serco is an appalling, appalling company. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, mm. A private company, excuse me, immigration, oh, yucko. But and making money out of imprisonment, what a bad thing that is. But, but the reality of it is, is that in the new jail up there at, at Clarence, Every prisoner has a tablet connected to the internet and they have access to in their cells to talk to their families. Now that's not bad. And they have also some limited services at the moment. Now that's going to expand. But we were told that, they, that the services would include a whole lot of stuff in, um, for every prisoner. So access to Aboriginal uh, cultural stuff, education stuff, a whole lot of stuff that's really useful, including drug rehab stuff, um, gay and lesbian stuff as well. It's intended to be all that was guaranteed that would be available to us. We'd be given the names of websites that would be would be accessible. And we understand also Macquarie University was to give um, access to a special mind freedom. I think it's called something like that too. A whole lot of stuff there in detail. So there's no question about it happening. It will happen in and, and it is currently happening, but they're slow now. Yeah, everything's slow in the prison system, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you see, I mean, things are a little bit different now too because because uh, COVID has meant that people, um, uh, what was previously was was difficult with all the governors saying, ah, I'm not going to allow the crims to have tablets. They suddenly realised that, hang on, we, we, we can control the tablets because they already had experience of them in the visiting areas. And mm -hmm. so they went, well, okay, maybe we can control this. And then they suddenly realized that, that and with the tablets, they all run through a central system. And so, I mean, any information has to go through their server and it means they have full record of whatever's being said. Yeah. You should, should yeah. mention the people at home that when, when we say internet access, it's going to be a, like a very limited, like a number of approved <laughs> websites that are closely monitored, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that, look, I think my personal opinion on this, this is, I think the title it is, the better is, I think the, obviously some people will, will say things that are stupid and some things will, you know, some people will, will make difficulties for themselves, but that's okay. Because I think it's important that people um, a, a do take responsibility for their behavior and if they know that's been recorded and most of the stuff will be in fact will all be recorded yeah and so, so you know people have to accept the fact that um you know you're passing information through their system in the same way as you write a letter you write a letter now they can copy it they do they do copy it 
And mm. so you have to accept the fact that you're not going to have a private conversation there. And so, and but you have access to things that otherwise you wouldn't get. So, in my opinion, talking now as an ex-president, you know, I have no problem at all in accepting um, that as being part of a restriction. Um, in the same way as when I talk to my family, I know that um, it can be recorded, often is recorded. Yeah, no, I uh, I definitely think we do need realistic goals. I've talked to like a couple of like um, abolitionist groups, and I'm like, yes, that's a great idea, but I yeah, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get dismantle the entire system anytime soon. But uh, that definitely sounds promising. I look forward to hopefully hearing um, that when that goes completely live. It's it's interesting that it's taken the pandemic for the government to realize that this could actually be something constructive. And um, it's my understanding you've got uh, another campaign um, uh, at the moment regarding prisoners in the lockdown in the pandemic is that right yes that's right well that's this is really serious stuff actually like it's it's um the the second wave the first wave was um, a situation where we managed to generate enough uh, enough interest back there in in um, january february uh, last year to get pressure on the new south wales government and to have them pass a, a law which allowed the commissioner to release people so the commissioner could actually give people parole as long as they're serving the last 12 months of their sentence and a few other bits and pieces, you know, no domestic violence and a whole range of things in there and a place to go to. So those gave the commissioner a chance to chance to release people and take the pressure off out of the prison system because what they had was, a, and they still have, is an obligation um, that every uh, managed area like a, an office, for example, or places where you have a manager in charge, that you have to have four square metres per person. Now, mm-hmm. um, so likewise, if you look in a, look in a cell, a cell is, huh, it's, mm-hmm. might be 6.5 square metres for two people. Some of yes. them have people mm-hmm. on that. No. Mm-hmm. So you haven't got four square metres per person. So it means that really, where they've got two people in a the cell, they're not legally entitled to do it. There should be only one person in that cell. And so in order for people to be able to properly protect themselves, and then add to that, the obligation to have proper ventilation through the area as well, you see? Um, if you sit in a slot in the, in the, in the middle of summer, Oh, no, mm. you know what it's like. You know, you strip off and throw some water over yourself and go, oh, and then I, next five minutes later, you do it again. Oh, I've oh, talked gee. to people who like literally like pour water on the floor of their cell and, and lie in it because that's the only way you can get like any kind of cooling. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, no, no ventilation and go on, and, and the you know the bars there, and you got you know, maybe half the window is covered with steel. You know, falling under your um, your cell door. You're lucky if you have a bit of space there. If you have a bit of space, that's good. Um, mm. But you know, in a in a high security cell, two doors are oh, what? And so you have no, you know, it's a appalling um, uh, situation there. So there's a, there's the base. So back in back in January last year, January, February, March, they March they changed the law here in New South Wales, not in other states and territories, just New South Wales. But other states and territories have a chance, have a, other sorts of abilities to release people as well. So we actually negotiated with all states and territories and said to them all, hang on, COVID's happening. No, you actually now have an obligation now to ensure that people are safe and your health orders uh, do mean something. And in the United States, we made a point that are pointing out that what happens there, they, they had six times the rate of infections inside the prisons. And mm. in New York, in Rikers Island, people were dying all over the place. Oh, what a mess. And people in, in here in Australia, they thought, oh, we're okay. But then they realized, oh, not that simple. It's going to come here into Australia too. And so they changed the laws, gave them a chance to release, release prisons, and nothing happened. So hot. Uh- until until Delta happened, and well, that changed things. Yeah, I remember being really depressed that uh, like uh, just everywhere from the US to even Iran was releasing prisoners because of the pandemic. And but yeah, here in New South Wales, we yeah, yeah, there's there's a distinct lack of action here. So we came up to the Delta situation, 
and it was quite clear that this was a, had a whole different tenor. And there was also this language that had changed also in, in Australia, where they were talking about living with COVID. And so suddenly mm. went, whoa, hang on, this is really going to happen. And, and we could see in New South Wales that it was, it was getting away. We had over a thousand people being infected. And then slew all into Parkley as well, hang on into Bathurst and oh, I went. And we went, come on, let's get some action going here. So we went back to the commissioners, hey, commissioner, what are you doing? Not just here in New South Wales, but also other states. We went to every commissioner and then hang on, you guys have got to see that the, the vaccinations have to go in. And then nothing happened. Vaccinations in prisons were not occurring. They took vaccinations available, took them away, and then um, who actually asked, can I be vaccinated? We're told, no, you only can get Pfizer. You cannot get AstraZeneca because you actually, um, you were an older person. You had a whole lot of people who had asked for vaccinations, weren't, weren't given them. So we then went back and we said, hang on, something has to happen here. We then cobbled together a court case and we into the Supreme Court and with a, a request for an order and an injunction, a class action, we had hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of families beside us working through the Facebook pages, two very significant, um, three very significant Facebook pages working in behind um, the campaign to have people released. And then they gave us all these plaintiffs and all the information from prisons from Cessnock right down to down to Juni about what's currently happening, the lockdowns, what was occurring, and, and the infections coming in as well. What were people's treatments? Some people have been locked in their in their cells for 17 days, never not getting out, not seeing the open air at all. Co totally contrary to the law. We went, okay, let's get in, let's do a court case. We got it, we cobbled together a court case and then um, issued the summons ourselves against the commissioner. And then, and that's where we are now as of 6th of October. Then we had the first hearing, the court case. Now we've got a barrister, so this is other barristers coming in from um, Victoria as well, helping. And, and we've now got a court case to release prisoners, to abide by the health orders for four square metres per person, to make sure there's time in the open areas to which you're entitled, access to vaccinations, and making sure all staff has, been, has to be vaccinated. It means at least the prison officers are not going to obviously bring in infections in, which is what they, of course, they do. And then the people who need to actually want vaccinations, prisoners can get access to them, and then also computer tablets so they can deliver the services to which prisons are entitled to in order that we can they can we can all get out and actually and and um, survive in the community with you know using their time properly yourself yes it was broken Something I found after I got out was that um, like the first journalists that were interviewing me, they um, reached out for interviews with me and I said, are, are you sure you want to interview me? Don't you want to interview someone who did like 20 years for murder or something? And, and something I kept hearing was they're like, oh, Damien, we, we, we have trouble finding anyone who's like kind of happy to talk about the prison system. And I found I've been doing like a lot of campaigning since I got out. Like I've kept in touch with like uh, some friends and like uh, everybody else is just... Uh, nobody else has, uh, has really gotten involved that much. Do you, do you think there's a reason why um, a lot of inmates don't get involved with projects like this after they get out? Well, yes, I, look, I think so. Let me just say, when I first got out, I, I got out into, into the hotbed of action, which was the, the prisoners action group halfway house. So I had a natural place where I had people who had the prison experience beside me and we had energy. We generated our own energy because we were all living together and giving support to each other. And so it was good to have a like a physical place where we could actually could we come together. That's really that was I found really valuable. And so we had a whole lot of people who actually needed a hand, and it could come out and we could actually look after them. And and also if you can have them so that they are stable, 
um, and I have get the things I need to do and get and get some mentoring, peer mentoring, give them a hand, give them assistance in different sorts of ways, um, that's really valuable. So I think the absence of that sort of physical place and, and support area is has been difficult for people to do what they could do. You see, so people like yourself, for example, you should have a, you should have employment. You should actually all your skills and things should be properly used, and you should be a, a mentor to others. You have goodwill, offer goodwill, and so do I. We want to offer help, help other people who are still in the system to make sure that they don't go back into jail again. And we want to do it on their terms, to give them a hand. So that sort of base is a good one. But the trouble is all the money that is currently available for ex-prisoners, for services to them, accommodation, all those things, they're taken by all these NGOs. Any aftercare service money has gone to them. There's not a single person I'm aware of in the, in the NGOs who give aftercare who've ever had prison experience. All the um, NGOs have put their hands out and taken money, and they're the ones that government wants to give money to. That is wrong. It's really wrong. It's like giving men money for women's services. They can't do that. It's, the services should be for the ex-prisoner, the prisoner movement, and it should control it in the same way as Aboriginal people should be able to control their own money that's intended for their services. Now, that's fundamental to it. So there has to be jobs. And I don't mind um, working for no money. It's no problem. I don't, I, we run a social enterprise and have done that and it keeps us independent. But how many people were prepared to you know, put their time aside for, you know, for no money, put their you know, heart and soul into it? And so you know, not many, not many. So I think that we, we have to go for the uh, a funding base and we have to push out the NGOs and say, get out of here. That's not your money. That's our money. That's our, that's our money, that aftercare money is money that should be controlled by ex-prisoners. And then we select making sure that the people who actually are doing the work do it properly, they're held accountable. It's open stuff, they don't just control the money and sit fat and do nothing. No, 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 they have to be responsive to people who are currently serving the time. Now, I think that's fundamental to us. But there's a whole lot of, so much goodwill out there. I mean, you, you see it and I so do I see it too, Damien. And anyway, yeah. I agree with you. There are a whole lot of people who could be much more engaged, but I think there have to be jobs for people. And I think there has to be some money as well, and training as well, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely. And that, that is a good explanation about how, um, yeah, the, the lack of opportunity and the lack of like, um, you know, organisations that understand actual, yeah, what it's like to be a prisoner that, you know, that are involved in the the post you know release um post prisoner issues like that H how would people find out more about justice action okay look probably it's the easiest thing is the is the i mean facebook too i look i'm not, i must admit i'm not a big facebook person <laughs> no, um, me, me either yeah. okay <laughs> fair enough but it's up there we have a facebook page which is um being um like we have um one of our uh, teams is a media team who actually maintains the facebook page and likewise tweeting and that sort of stuff stuff's happening out there look i'm more controlled i'm more more concerned actually in the the website because the website's really to me is a stable place where people can go to information so if you go to, to justiceaction.org.au there's your base for information you make contact with us all that stuff there and it also leads with our um, our current leading campaigns are up there it's also there's a lot of history there. there's a massive amount of information it's just oh, enormous amount of information there i'm deliberately there so can people can draw upon it and um and so you know, there's a and there's a lot of goodwill you know, it's intended to intended to offer answers to questions and tend to offer offer answers to very thorny issues so like mental health for example ha oh, ha oh, oh, mental health what a what a shocking area that is and in prisons oh what yeah and then they try to inject people with so they sit there and comatose in the corner of a cell so that then oh you're okay mate there's no problem take your injection once a month and once every now then once every three months for a depot injection 
They say, oh, yeah, look, you're a nice problem. It's not a problem. Just you're mentally, a little bit mentally ill. You need to have a bit of a medication to settle it down. And they try and smarmy you into, into um, a, a taking a medication, which means that you can't survive as a, as a normal person outside in the community after that. That is appalling. And so that sort of stuff we have to confront. We are confronting. And so we got a we got a whole smorgasbord of battles in front of us. You know, we are oh, G G G. And um, but that's okay. That's where it should be. We got a we got a team of um, fifty thousand people actually currently inside the institutions. As soon as we get them in and get mm. them involved, and they have the tablets in their hands, then we're going to have a little bit more and more say. And then then we'll have the voices coming up in the way they haven't heard the, they haven't heard the shouts yet. So well, I, I hadn't considered that. Yeah being able to network better with the prisoners once we get the tablets in there, because yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. We covered that in uh, episode in season one, how the, the prison, they, they don't care about like actually providing therapy. They just want to dope everyone up so they don't have to deal with them anymore. And it, it does definitely does sound like you've got, there, there's a lot of points to attack there. There's a lot of battles to win and it uh, yeah. sounds like you're doing some good work with at least a few of them. So uh, yeah, I, I, I really encourage everyone to check out the website and, and see how, how you could get involved in the programs as well. And yeah, just uh, thanks a lot for being on the show today. So is there anything you'd like to add before we go? Thank you so much for the opportunity, Damien. I think it's wonderful. People like yourself, they, you know, you bring in so much goodwill and some, and it brings in other people as well. So yes, please, I, you know, we'll offer whatever we can. And the, the other part of it is, you know, it's a, what a privilege to be part of a, a, a community which can make a difference. You really can make a difference. And, and absorbing so much money. You remember every kid, every kid in juvenile justice across Australia, there are a thousand kids like that now. And every kid is worth $530,000 a year but to the service provider, $530,000 a year. There's massive money in our area. So we need to take control of the financing that's going in and make it actually work and be part of the solution. So things like reducing recidivism, <laughs> that's our control. We make decisions on that. We need jobs and training and things like that. And I think that's an important thing for us to do. So I'm looking forward to working with you, Damien, and all the others, all the other good people around the place and, and the people inside to turn it around and make it work much better. It sounds like a plan and hopefully we can make a difference. But uh, yeah, Thank thanks you. for being on the program today. Thanks, Damien. But she was no more broken than a spear with a chipped blade. Marks like those were signs of strength. Marks like those were signs of signs of strength. Well, thanks for listening to Broken Chains. Broken Chains is hosted by myself, Damien Lenane, is produced by Newcastle Libraries and features music by Louisa Magrix. On the next episode, we're going to be talking to Keenan Mundine, co-founder of the advocacy group Deadly Connections, about Indigenous youth in custody. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to smile, and we'll see you next time. Dines of strength. Signs of strength. This has been a Newcastle Library's real production.